Hello and welcome to another returning episode of Insanely Criminal. I'm Emma. And I'm Jem. And we're back after a bit of a hiatus. Yeah, it's been a... I feel like we left the last episode so excited about meeting up. And we did it. Um, we did. Yeah, we did. We were going to do on location, but we just did not have enough time. So time <laughs> just absolutely ran away from us. But I feel like everything just went downhill after that. Well, yeah, <laughs> life, life kind of uh, got in the way <laughs> quite yeah. a lot. I think it was life, the Euros and Wimbledon. No? Yeah, and just like I'd, I seem to have a lot of events all in a short space of time. So it was getting to the point where I'm like, at the end of the week, absolutely exhausted from just like doing stuff that I'm not used to doing stuff all the time. And now we're not doing anything because it's uh, too hot. Mm. <laughs> oh my god it's too hot I was thinking about this today that how everyone in the UK is like oh my god it's like the hottest it's ever been and it isn't but it's still not as hot as like some countries in the world I this think is all we can cope with <laughs> the, the problem in this country though, it's the humidity mm. that it's it's the way that it just feels like it's all over you. It's like going out in a... It's like sitting in a hot bath when you're outside. Yeah. But, like, not a comfortable hot bath. I know. I know. We I'm had the bright right. idea to have a barbecue earlier, and that was hell on earth, because it was obviously the air was boiling hot, and then I had the flames. Yep. I had the same thing on Saturday. <clears throat> it was great. Like, I had a really nice time. I had a barbecue at my sister's. But it was when I was cooking, I was like, that is like double hot now. (laughs) All that smoke. It's true. I'm like not built for this heat either. I'm really pale and it just kills me. My neighbour said to me yesterday, we were talking about uh, the heat and stuff. And he said, uh, oh, I'm really pale. Uh, I'm not good in this heat. You'll be all right, though. And I went, hey. (laughs) <laughs> if you see me, I'm like super pale. And you're like, yeah, but you've got dark hair. <laughs> Do you think that's natural? <laughs> like, Do I look like I should naturally have dark hair? <laughs> look at my colour. Yeah, see, I do have naturally dark hair, but I'm still not cut out for this. I used to be really tanned naturally. Um... And I got sunburn one year really badly. And I've been pale ever since. Very odd. It sounds like you shocked your system into yeah. it again. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have sat in that uh, fully glass bus stop when I was fourteen in a heatwave. Yikes! Yeah, it wasn't wasn't my uh, best move. <laughs> Perhaps not. <sighs> but other than that. I've been up to nothing else. Absolutely what nothing. Been up to? I uh, started learning how to ride a bike this morning. Oh, how did it go? It went really well, actually. I really enjoyed it. And now I just want to get on a bike and mess about like all the time. I don't have a bike yet. so. Oh, you've got to get a bike. It's so much fun. Oh, my God. I haven't ridden a bike for years. I've haven't ridden a bike ever so I thought I'm 33 now 
it's time to conquer this fear. I think of the money you could save on Ubers, too. Well, <laughs> I mean, you, um, you see, the, the ultimate goal is to be able to cycle to work from where I live, which I think is about nine miles, ten miles, but it's straight down the canal towpath. Oh, nice. So I wouldn't have to go on the road, which is really good. Um, and I mean, yes, Ubers, but generally when I get an Uber, I'm either late to going somewhere <laughs> or I am in a bit of a stitch. So, uh, <laughs> and I think drunk in charge of a bike is an offence. So. Yeah, it is, I think, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe not. But if I was going, like, to the shops or if I was maybe cycling into Bradford, we will see. Because I don't don't imagine Bradford's the safest place for a cyclist. Yeah, if you get a bike, though, if you do get a bike, you have to get one with a basket. Oh, I, I'll send you a picture later of the one I want. It's me <laughs> and oh, it's yes. got a basket. Oh. And the instructor obviously took one look at me and he was like, right, biking aspirations. So I don't know why, but I've got a funny feeling that you would like a nice bike with a basket (laughs) and maybe you can ride it to the shops and you'll put your, like, artisan products in it. And I'm like, will you get out of my head? Like, literally (laughs) my dream. (laughs) He's like, I had a funny feeling. You're like, yeah. Well, I'm like, yeah, that is 100% me. And I'll have, like, a nice little pannier bag on the back. But in my front basket, I'll have, like, uh, sourdough and some beers, maybe some fresh flowers. And then when you get a sausage dog, you have to get, like, one of those little attachable... um, Oh, my God. Seats for it. (laughs) That's the real dream, isn't it? The dream. It is. Oh, I would feel very sorry for a sausage dog in this heat, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's bad enough for me, let alone a sausage dog. My cat is, like, dying in this heat. (sighs) Dying. So, uh, I'm going to try and get into, like, a comfortable position for this. Oh. Is it going to be a gruesome one, or...? Um, not gruesome. I'd I'd say harrowing oh. is is possibly the um the the word. The more I read about this, and the more it upsets me, but it's also absolutely fascinating. Um, and I will at the end. I'll come on to what I was listening to before we started, and it's just terrifying. So I don't. I haven't told you what it is. I no, know what. you so, haven't. Very excited. Yeah. Well, prior to the September 11th terror attacks, this incident marked the single largest loss of US civilian life in a non-natural disaster. So what started as an idea of a socialist, racially equal utopia ended in one of the most horrific events in modern history. Do you know what I'm going to talk about? There's like about ten things going round in my head. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, tell me, tell me. I'm going to talk about the Jonestown massacre. Yes. See, I wanted to do this ages ago, 
I was like, he terrifies me. So, yeah, he, um, he, the more like stuff I listen to with him talking. Oh, terrifying person. He really is. I don't know what it is because he looks like a fucking dog. Or look like a fucking dog. But (laughs) he's one of those people where he just seems to be able to brainwash people so easily and that's terrifying. Yeah. It really is. So yeah. So I'm sure most of you know the details of this if you're listening to a true crime podcast, but if you don't, at the very highest level, this is a story of an American cult called People's Temple, which operated between 1954 and 1978. The cult came to an abrupt end in 1978 with the death of over 900 members in a mass murder-suicide. So for a long time, this event was thought of just as a mass suicide, more recently it's come to be known as a more of a mass murder suicide as a number of people uh, were coerced into ending their own lives there were reports of some people being forcibly injected with poison um a third of the victims were also children so possibly well almost certainly incapable of making that decision and should never be, have been in the position where they were at risk of having to make that decision so uh, sometimes it's just known as as, as a mass murder um, rather than a murder-suicide. So how did a new religious movement based on elements of Christianity, communist and socialist ideology and racial equality end up like this? Let's take a look at the founder of the People's Temple, Jim Jones. A very terrifying man, as we have just pointed out. So, James Warren Jones was born on May 13th, 1931, in Crete, Indiana. By 1934, the Great Depression forced Jim, along with his parents, Lynetta Putnam and James Thurman Jones, a World War I veteran, to move to the nearby town of Lynn. Described as an intelligent and strange child, he was often a loner. Is this ringing any bells from any other of the many things we have talked about? Yeah, literally all of them. <laughs> They're always, oh, he was an intelligent child. He was often alone. Yes. Uh, Jim was obsessed with religion and death. One of his childhood friends was quoted as saying, I thought Jimmy was a really weird kid. He apparently did experiments on small animals and held funerals for them in his parents' garden. He was also thought to have stabbed a cat to death. Oh, it's always the cats. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that, we do... used to have uh, funerals for our pets in the garden. Just, you know, not on this level. <laughs> I think that's fine. Like, that's a fairly normal thing to do, I would say. But maybe, like, experimenting on animals and then giving them a funeral. That's just yeah, very weird. So Jim became obsessed with reading about Stalin, Karl Marx and Adolf Hitler and became particularly enamoured with Hitler. Apparently when he learned of Hitler committing suicide in 1945 to avoid capture by his enemies, Jones was impressed. Um, Jones was starting to develop an anger towards people who he thought would abandon him. Um, He once locked his friends up in a barn whilst he entertained them. So he wouldn't let them leave uh, while he was doing whatever he was doing, probably stabbing a cat. Um, 
Yeah, so he's already a little bit weird. But as he grew older, Jones claimed that his father was associated with the Ku Klux Klan, um, and he recalled how he didn't speak to his father for years after his father refused to allow one of Jones' black friends into the house. Following the separation of his parents, um, I don't think he, he remained in touch with his father, Jones moved in with his mother to Richmond, Indiana, and after graduating from high school, he took a job as an orderly in a local hospital. It was here that he met his wife, Marceline Baldwin, whom he married in 1949. Now, in his job in the hospital, he was highly regarded by the senior managers, but the staff members day-to-day said that he had some very weird tendencies. Now, I couldn't really find too much out about it, apart from that he kind of he didn't attack but he accidentally cut um someone when he was giving them like a, a dry shave or something like that and apparently he looked really menacing while he was doing it so oh, god yeah i don't i don't think he so far he's not your classic kind of cutthroat gruesome murdering kind of guy but he's definitely yeah. a strange one so Jones began attending gatherings of the Communist Party in Indianapolis by 1951, but became frustrated with seeing open and accused communists persecuted for what they believe in, what they talked about. So this time it was post-World War II, so the time of the second Red Scare. uh, There was a lot of Cold War paranoia, as anyone who was accused of or admitted to being a communist was thought to be a Soviet spy. Um, there was obviously the massive belief in society that there was going to be an all-out nuclear war between Russia and the US. So anyone who who had communist beliefs uh, was thought to be part of of aiding Russia to do that. So Jones said to himself, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? And the thought was, infiltrate the church. So Jones became a student pastor at the Somerset Southside Methodist Church, but later left, claiming he wasn't allowed to include black people in his congregation. Jones subsequently witnessed a faith healing service and noticed how many people it drew in and how their attention was all on the pastor. He noticed how people would donate their money also. Jones came to the conclusion that he would need money in order to progress his social ideas. Shortly after, Jones organised a religious convention and he arranged for healing evangelist Reverend William M. Branham to attend in order to draw a crowd. Um, This guy was quite notorious in this circle, so he knew that by having someone that would share the pulpit with him like that, he'd be able to, to get that crowd in. Shortly after this, in 1954, Jones was able to begin his own church, namely the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel which was later shortened to the People's Temple. So this was the group that he set up. Um, This was the the so-called cult. And we'll see uh, in the coming minutes what happens to them. So Jones made a point to state that his church was open to all ethnic groups, which was seen as really revolutionary at the time. Uh, At the time, as the US was in a state of deep racial segregation. Um, So he's church drew in a lot of um support from like ethnic minorities um which is kind of heartbreaking when we get to end of how this story ends so the people's temple so so far so good right he's he's got he's in uh he's developing a religion or a, a church 
that's you know open to everybody. He's all about racial equality. He's all about socialism. But this is where it maybe starts to go a little bit wrong. Yeah, I mean, he started really to. Well, it seemed like he was like a really good guy with all that stuff going on. But, but as we know, yeah. <laughs> So Jones was still regularly studying the ideals, styles and approaches of Hitler to learn how to manipulate members of the church and get them to go along with whatever he thought was right. He also studied the ways of Father Divine, who was quite a notorious African-American spiritual leader and evangelist. He founded the International Peace Mission Movement. Now, Divine apparently personally told him to find an enemy and to make sure they know, as in the, your followers, your congregation, know who the enemy is, as it will unify those in the group and make them subservient to you. So we're already getting a little bit messed up here. I mean, it's starting to go downhill. Yeah. So in 1960, the mayor of Indianapolis appointed Jones director of the local Human Rights Commission, but he was told to keep a low profile, basically keep his views in check. Jones, of course, ignores, ignored this and instead found more ways to get his views and ideals out to the, the wider world. He appeared at a meeting of the NAACP and Urban League and yelled for the audience to be more militant in their actions against their injustices. He ended by shouting, let my people go. Yes. But around the same time, Jones was focusing a lot of his efforts on racially integrating churches, restaurants, theatres and the local hospital. His efforts alongside political pressure eventually resulted in the hospital desegregating the wards. Uh, Jones, however, received considerable criticism in Indiana for his views. Many white-owned businesses were critical of him. He faced backlashes such as a dead cat being thrown at his house and a stick of dynamite being left in a pile of coal at the temple. Nice. Yeah. <clears throat> Again so... with a cat, though. <laughs> no, why is it with cats? Poor cats. Um, Jones was starting to attract a wide range of people from all kinds of different racial backgrounds and age groups as well who were drawn to his progressive ideals, which were, as I said, quite revolutionary at the time. Um, it was uh, kind of what still kind of is, but it was a particularly horrible time in the US. Um, so... I think a lot of people were drawn to this as it was, it seemed like this was the way forward and this was like progress, which is kind of heartbreaking, really. Yeah, definitely. Especially if, you, if anyone's listening and knows the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So Jones and his wife, Marceline, uh, adopted a number of non-white children, which he referred to as his rainbow family. Mm. He also portrayed the People's Temple as a rainbow family, um, saying that obviously it was open to to all religions. But that's a bit of a, a bit of a bizarre way. Uh, also, kind of struck me as a bit of like white saviorism kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's where I was like, like actually, this guy is horrific. <laughs> Um, in 1961, they became the first white couple in Indiana to adopt a black child, if you need to award such a thing. So just to remind you, we're in the early 1960s now. It's a Cold War period. A nuclear war paranoia is starting to integrate itself into, into society. And Jones came across an article in Esquire magazine that listed nine safe places in the world in case of an all-out nuclear war. 
So whilst not his first choice on the list was a place called Eureka in California, um, Jones became obsessed with the idea that nuclear war was inevitable and told his congregation that the only way for them to be safe was to move to California. Jones also forewarned of a nuclear attack that would happen on July 15th, 1967. He told his congregation that he'd lead them to an interracial utopia. Jones, his family and about 70 of his followers shortly moved to Redwood Valley in Northern California to escape this impending nuclear threat. So Jones began drifting away from traditional Christian ideals. Um, prior to the move to, the, to California, the temple had begun to tighten its grip on its followers. It began to demand that the followers spend Thanksgiving and Christmas with their temple family rather than their actual families. This was an effort to reduce the followers' contact with them outside the church. They also had to basically devote all their, their time to, to doing things um, to, to forward the movement and everything like that. Um, Jones began to offer a deal that in exchange for all the members' material possessions, the temple would there, thereafter meet all of their needs. Um, so it's starting to get more and more kind of dictatorship rather than this friendly kind of inclusive religion that he'd started. Yeah, I think if you need to give up a lot of things to be in a religion, it's not a religion, it's definitely a cult. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So Jones began began then speaking quite openly about how communism had been his goal all along. He stated that religion was merely his way of making Marxism more palatable to the people. By the 1970s, the People's Temple had spread to both Los Angeles and San Francisco, where it became officially based, so San Francisco. Uh, that was to recruit more members. They were in quite a rural area in Redwood Valley, so they moved to more urban areas so they could reach more people. Jones was an advocate for the downtrodden, and this earned him the aberration of people like Angela Davis and Harvey Milk. He also had support of groups like the Black Panthers. Unlike other so-called cult leaders, Jones enjoyed public support and high levels of approval from local government. He also had contact with some of the highest level politicians in the US. So he's, he's a fairly highly thought of guy, and even kind of right towards the end he was still a, a, a really highly regarded guy this just shows you kind of how persuasive he could be yeah and again like we said before that's why he's so terrifying yeah absolutely well not everyone was on the side of jim jones and the people's temple so in 1973 a mag- magazine article exposing the dark side of the temple was published prompting jones to look to relocate the group again the article opened with Jim Jones is one of the state's most politically potent leaders, but who is he and what's going on behind his church's locked doors? The Jones immediately prepared a, what he called an immediate action contingency plan for responding to either a police or media crackdown. He once again convinced his followers that the only way to avoid a growing or what he believed to be a growing media backlash was to relocate the group to a Caribbean missionary post. The temple quickly chose Guyana as their new location. They chose the area as its socialist regime regime was politically sympathetic to theirs. So in October 1973, the directors of the temple passed a resolution to set up an agricultural mission in Guyana. Being the persuasive and charismatic leader that he'd become, Jones had no problem in convincing the Guyanese government to allow the people's temple to settle within its borders. 
stating that their settlement of US citizens near the disputed Venezuelan border would reduce the chances of a military incursion. Uh, the the Guyanese were really kind of worried that Venezuela would invade them. So he said, if you have US citizens on your soil, that's not going to happen. And the the Guyanese agreed. So they, they allowed him to come and settle. So Jones and the Temple negotiated a lease for 3,000 acres of land in northwest Guyana, approximately 150 miles west of the capital of Georgetown. And the settlement was named Jonestown, of course. How original. Yes, indeed. (laughs) So the development of Jonestown and then the mass migration and then the daily life. So this place was sold as... This is going to be, this is like the promised land kind of thing. This is going to be the utopia I've been promising you. Um, It's away from uh, the media. It's away from any kind of law enforcement. We've got the local government. They're on our side. They're fighting for the same thing. So people obviously were excited to go there. So 500 members of the temple began construction of Jonestown. The site was isolated with the nearest body of water being seven miles away by road. Being that the settlement was to be an agricultural mission project, the soil lacked any facility, so it would be difficult for the settlement to become self-sufficient as they'd hoped. Despite this, Jones saw Jonestown as a socialist paradise and a sanctuary from media scrutiny. It was held up as a benevolent communist community. In 1977, Jim Jones and several hundred of his followers formally moved to Jonestown. Following the mass migration, Jonestown became overcrowded. Its population was just under 900 at its peak. Uh, As I said, the followers had been promised that Jonestown would be this paradise or utopia where they could live the rest of their lives in harmony. The situation soon changed after the mass migration, however. So whilst the people who were building it and constructing it before uh, the mass migration they'd just been watching kind of pleasant nice films and things that they got from georgetown as soon as the majority of the followers were there they were all forced to watch soviet propaganda shots and documentaries about american social problems for the first few months their followers worked six days a week from 6 30 a.m to 6 p.m with an hour for lunch as they worked the temple delivered rambling monologues from jones by megaphone Jones compared the schedule to the North Korean system of eight hours of work a day, followed by eight hours of study. Um, when Jones's health started to decline, he did relax the working slightly, uh, but they still ultimately, their purpose was to basically run Jonestown. Um, and anything that they did in their free time was strictly controlled and monitored. So the temple subjected its followers to sophisticated mind control and behaviour modification techniques that were modelled on kind of Chinese and North Korean techniques. Um, Jones recorded readings of the news which were constantly broadcast over the Jonestown Tower speakers. All members needed to be able to hear them throughout the day and night. The news readings normally portrayed the US as a capitalist and imperialist villain. Despite Jones having access to an estimated $26 million by 1978, the followers lived in small communal houses and the diet consisted of nothing more than rice, beans, greens and sometimes meat and eggs. Jones himself only lived in a very small house um, anyway. So I don't know if he was trying to get his 
followers to be like, yep, yeah, we're all equal here and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, probably. I mean, if you had 26 million, you're not going to want to live in a small house. No. So he was probably doing it just to say that, you know, they were all equal, even though he is definitely the big leader. But then the location that they're in, it's really, it was really hard to kind of get anything there. So uh, maybe it's just practicalities, perhaps. But who knows? So despite having no formal justice system or prison, various forms of punishment were used in Jonestown, quite horrible ones. So for those who were deemed to have serious disciplinary problems, the punishments included imprisonment in a six by four by three foot box and for children, forcing them to spend the night at the bottom of a well, sometimes upside down. Um, A lot of the children were taken away from their biological parents as well. um, And they were only allowed to see them kind of for an hour a day, if if that. Um, They all ended up calling Joan's daddy or father as well, which I think is very, very weird. Oh, that's just beyond weird. Yeah, it's horrible. So naturally, some members attempted to escape, but after capture, they were treated with various sedation drugs in an extended care unit. So this is, it's just getting more and more, for me, it was getting more and more unsettling as I was reading about this, because it's, yeah. Armed guards patrolled the area day and night as part of the original settlement negotiations. Uh, Jones had convinced the Guyanese officials to let the settlers import various goods duty-free. Um, they then started getting imports of weapons and drugs, uh, which they just paid off the customs officials to turn a blind eye to it. So they had an armed patrol uh, all the time. So it was difficult for anyone to escape if they had wanted to. So the question... Would you have wanted to live in Jonestown? Um, I mean, I'm not going to say yeah, but I think in that era, it'd be so easy to be swayed to join yeah. the People's Temple. And you probably could quite easily find yourself in that situation. Um, would I want to go there now? No. But I think... Easily, you or I could have been swayed into something like that in those times. I think that he went after vulnerable people. He went after the downtrodden and he knew exactly how to exploit them. And getting them to like sign over all their money and all their possessions. And apparently that for the first, at least the first year of Jonestown being like a proper place it was funded on the welfare checks that were still getting sent to some of the residents. So the US Embassy in Guyana kind of intervened and interviewed the people who were getting these welfare checks and were like, we just want to like make sure that you're not being coerced into turning them over. They are going to you and your family's welfare. You're happy living in Jonestown, you don't want to leave. And all of them said, yep, yeah, perfectly happy. And no, we're not being forced to turn over our welfare and they absolutely were so it just shows um, the extent of how he's been controlling them absolutely and i think if you had gone to the embassy and said yeah please help me you would probably be too scared number one to even do that and number two if you had said something to go have to go back to jonestown and act like yep. nothing was happening absolutely 
I would assume Jim Jones would have guards following following you at all times anyway. I'd imagine so, yeah. Guaranteed. So, this is where it becomes really, really awful. So, the White Knight rehearsals. So, Jones was becoming increasingly paranoid and concerned about the safety of the Jonestown settlers. He regularly addressed them, stating that intelligence agencies were monitoring them and conspiring with the US capitalist pigs to destroy the settlement and the ideas that they built up. He began conducting so-called white nights in which residents were told they were under attack and were given four options. So attempt to flee to the Soviet Union, commit revolutionary suicide, stay in Jonestown and fight the attackers, or flee into the jungle. So on occasions where revolutionary suicide was chosen, a simulated mass suicide was rehearsed. A defector of the temple, Deborah Layton, described the event. Everyone, including the children, was told to line up. As we passed through the line, we were given a small glass of red liquid to drink. We were told that the liquid contained poison and that we would die within 45 minutes. We all did as we were told. When the time came when we should have dropped dead, Reverend Jones explained that the poison was not real and that we'd just been through a loyalty test. He warned us that the time was not far off when it would become necessary for us to die by our own hands. Now that is just beyond horrific. Yeah, that's put me off living there. (laughs) It's just... Oh, God, just... But imagine being a kid in that line and you're probably not with any of your family and being told to drink that it's poison. You're going to die in under an hour. I mean, ugh. It's just... um, It's beyond words. Um, It really is. So concerns and the investigation of Jonestown. So back in the US, the families of Jonestown residents were starting to become increasingly concerned for the welfare of the inhabitants. They were receiving strange letters from their sons and daughters, sometimes nothing at all, and they began lobbying US officials to officially investigate the settlements. Former Temple members Jim and Grace Stone fought a custody battle in a Georgetown court for their five-year-old son John to be returned to them. Um, so their son was born and um, Grace, I believe, maintained that Jim Jones was the father. And Tim actually signed an affidavit to say that he wa- that they'd done a paternity test and that Jim was the father. Oh. I don't know if that's true. Um, but they, they, they escaped the temple, but their son was taken to Jonestown. Um, so they launched a custody battle to try and get him back. Um they actually won, but Jones refused to return the son. But thinking he could no, no, no longer trust the Guyanese authorities, Jones became increasingly paranoid and Jonestown just became an armed camp, surrounded by settlers with guns and machetes. Jones made a radio broadcast stating, we will die unless we are granted freedom from harassment and asylum. During this time, Jones' health began to rapidly deteriorate. He was told that he had a possible lung infection, but announced to his followers that he had lung cancer to try and gain sympathy and strengthen support for him following recent events. The once charismatic man now addressed the camp with slurred words and unfinished sentences. 
Following increasing pressure from family members from some of the residents, California Congressman Leo Ryan organised a fact-finding mission to Jernstown. The group included journalists and photographers along with Ryan himself. They arrived in Jonestown on the 17th of November 1978 to a cooperative Jim Jones. Apparently they were given like quite a, a welcome, but it was later reported that Jones had run rehearsals on how to convince Ryan that his party and all his followers were happy um, and they were all in good spirits and everything like that. Um, so, I mean, he was a very, very paranoid man by this point, unsurprisingly. Uh, later that night, two Temple members made their first move to escape. This is the first time that outsiders had gone to the camp. Um, a note from two of the settlers made its way to Ryan. Um, it was passed to somebody who they mistook for the congressman, but ultimately it made its way to, uh, to him. It simply said, Dear Congressman, Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, please help us get out of Jonestown. Oh, God. Yeah. So it was then that Ryan's party realised that something was very wrong with the camp. So, do you think it's going to end well? Um, I'll hazard a guess. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, you? you would be right. <laughs> yes. So, the massacre and the final white night. So... On November the 18th, more of the People's Temple's followers began to step forward and ask to be escorted from Jonestown by Ryan's group. Jones actually gave permission for two of the families to leave, along with Gosney and Bagby, who had written the notes. Um, Congressman Ryan wished to stay behind and gather up any remaining defectors, but a Temple member, Don Ujara Sly, attempted to stab Ryan. Ryan was unhurt, but decided that it was time to leave. Ryan, his party, and a number of Temple defectors were escorted back to the airstrip by Jonestown security squad. Just before they reached the aircraft, the security squad opened fire on the group, killing Ryan, who was shot more than 20 times, along with some of the defectors and a cameraman who had captured the first few minutes of the shootings. So it was this incident that sealed the fate of the Jonestown residents. So Joan's wife, Marceline, made a broadcast to the residents stating that everything was all right and they were to go back to their homes. During this time, Joan's aides began preparing a large metal tub containing grape flavoured, not Kool-Aid, as is often misreported. Same kind of thing, though. Laced with various drugs, uh, most famously cyanide. Approximately 30 minutes after Marceline's address, Jim Jones himself addressed the camp telling everyone to immediately assemble in the pavilion. So just to jump back a little bit, so before the departure of Congressman Ryan, he'd given a report on the camp to one of Joan's aides and said whilst he recognised that there were a few defectors of the people he interviewed, the majority liked Jonestown and wished to stay um, and that it was the kind of, the defectors he thought were just, a lot of it might have been peer pressure um, and it was, the majority of people he thought was fine. So he concluded by saying he would report Jonestown in basically good terms. Now, I don't know if that is the truth or whether he was saying that just to get those people safely out and maybe take more people back to liberate them, perhaps. Um, but that's what he said. And this information was passed on to Jim Jones. And despite being told it numerous times, 
Jones just said, I failed and all is lost. So he decided that there was nothing else he could do um, and that he was convinced that people were going to come back in force and basically kill them or convert them to fascism. So with his followers gathered, Jones addressed them for the final time, stating that it was time to enact the final white night. To stop any disagreement, Jones informed the group that Congressman Ryan had been murdered and the group's fate was already sealed. More people will be coming to attack their community, so a revolutionary suicide was the only option. Now, the recording of this address and the actual start of the suicide is all on tape um, because they were they recorded it and it was later recovered by the FBI. I started listening to it and it is awful. It is really, really difficult to listen to and I haven't even got to the the actual the the massacre itself but just the way he speaks he he sounds i think most people know my political views he sounds exactly like donald trump the way he speaks the way the kind of language he uses and the just the way he the way he says certain phrases he sounds exactly like trump that's terrifying. Yeah, I can see that actually because um I mean I don't have to say my political views either. But the way Trump spoke was always with such confidence and he'd use the same phrases over and over and over yep. again. That's exactly so it, it didn't matter if maybe like Trump didn't really understand much of what was going on. Mm-hmm. But the way he spoke, everyone thought he was like <laughs> he knew everything and he was their saviour. So yeah, yeah, I can he, see him and Jim Jones being very similar. One of the things he said was, a life without me is a life not worth living. Oh, Jesus. Was that Trump or Jim Jones? <laughs> Jim Jones. But you can hear all his followers like going, yeah, right, right, in the background. And it's like, oh, my God, oh. They're, just, they're just, they're so, oh, they're so far gone. And there's people, there's, there's one woman in particular who argues with him and says, where's our choice in this like where's the children's choice like children don't deserve to die and don't need to die and what about all these things you promised about like escaping to russia and you said that there was a phone call that we could make um and we'd be able to to escape to to russia and then and we'd be free and just the way that he argues is just so horrible and this woman's just like she she sounds like half resigned to the facts, but then kind of like, well, surely we get a choice. Like you can't, but he he just doesn't want to know. And that's as far as I've got. I don't know if I want to listen to it anymore because it's just a bit much. I, I'm not sure whether it's appropriate to listen to to any more of it, really. But I think it is. Like it's so fascinating, though, isn't it? It is, but it's it's. Listening to people dying, I'm not yeah. sure I really want to listen to that. This is where I started to feel like this is this how truly terrible this is. It's just, oh my God, it's so bad and it's so sad as well. So the next bit, I'm not going to go into it in too much detail as it is horrific and there's some really detailed accounts of what happened and it's just, if you want to go read it, read it 
it's interesting but it's just it's hard to read but basically the Jonestown residents including children all queued to receive the poison um the children were all poisoned first some forcibly um the poison would have caused death within 5 minutes for the children and 20 to 30 minutes for adults so they were given this poison um and basically told you're right you've got to wait to die now um which i can't imagine <laughs> what that must be like no i think for people our age that would be something quite difficult to take in let alone a child that probably doesn't really understand what's happening and i think that they they thought that they did it that way around so that basically they thought the parents have nothing to live for like the children yeah. have died so the, the parents might as well die as well so as more and more of the temple members died eventually the guards themselves were called for their turn um over 900 people died in this event uh, the official fifth figure is thought to be about 918 people um again there are plenty of pictures of the scene of Jonestown when Guyanese troops arrive the next day. I don't suggest you look at them because they're awful again, but you, you go Google Jonestown massacre and it will come up anyway. So it's, it's really horrible to, to think of all those people just, just lying there. Uh, but Jim Jones himself was also found dead from a gunshot wound, um, thought to be most likely self-inflicted, but also perhaps his like nursemaid, she was called Annie, may have killed him and then killed herself. A very small number of Temple members managed to survive, uh, mostly people who were hidden during the poisoning. One elderly woman slept through the entire ordeal, but awoke to find everybody that she knew dead. Oh my God. Yeah. So that's as much as I'm going to cover on the actual massacre because I think it's there are there's a, there's a lot of detail out there and it's just it's not it's it's interesting but it's not pleasant reading um but it is it is quite fascinating and just very very tragic as well but why why do you do this so contrary to the stereotyping that followed um, f- the followers of the pe- People's Temple weren't kind of these sinister, blind, brainwashed followers of a cult that they were made out to be. Um, a journalist, Tim Reitman, described in his book Raven, many of the followers were decent, hardworking, socially conscious people, some highly educated, who wanted to help their fellow man and serve God, not embrace a self-proclaimed deity on earth. Many people have been drawn to this religion by the ideas of racial equality and its progressive and socialist ideals, but instead they ended up giving their lives for this man. So that's it. Oh, it is. I think rough researching this. I think that's why I never wanted to do it. Every time I'd sit down and think, right, I'm going to research Jonestown, you get to the massacre part. And that's when I stopped. It's because just it's heartbreaking. Just, just knowing that <clears throat> they had no idea. And when it, it kind of like when it got to the 
you know, when it got to the kind of re- rehearsing the, the, the mass suicides, there was no way out for them. They were in way too deep. Yep. And it just absolutely breaks my heart. And I bet the majority of them did want to leave, but they knew, you know, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to be shot on the way out or am I just going to have to drink this poison? I mean, there were, there were obviously people who did. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and people who defected even before they got to Jonestown. Um, which is how some of these reports like got to the media about what was really going on in this place. But I think a lot of them were just kind of that. They'd been conditioned to believe that this was the right way to live, that they probably in their heads thought that they wanted this. Because, you know, like the individual thought had been broken out of them. Yeah, I mean, that is true. I mean, if you've been brainwashed that much by somebody. Um, yeah, I mean, it can change the whole way that you think. Mm. But you think of the children that had gone there what or, been, or been born there or anything like that. Yeah. To not know any other life. I think oh. there was about 33 children who were born in Jonestown. Oh, my God. No, it is horrific. And there's a few documentaries about it as well. And... There's loads of documentaries yeah. about it, yeah. Um, I've not watched that many of them, again, because Jim Jones absolutely terrifies me. But He's just not a, he's not a pleasant man to listen to. I don't find he's very... No. He makes me very uncomfortable, like very uneasy. Yeah, it's the tone of his voice as well. There's something about the tone that just creeps me out. Oh, but that's so the thing go. you see all the time though with these cult leaders. Yeah, again, like Donald Trump. I mean, that was most definitely a cult. Um, people might say no, it wasn't all they want, but it was definitely a cult. Um, people who followed Trump, and it's it's, it's just it's spooky how what similar kinds of ways of speaking they both have. Yeah. Um, just the way that they talk and there was a bit where so on this tape he's like if if you want me to call Russia I'll call Russia I'll get him on the phone right now oh, they're on the phone let, let, let's 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 have a chat that's the kind of thing yeah. I can imagine Trump saying I think that's the kind of stuff Trump used to say about North Korea though isn't it I've spoken to Kim Jong-un he's a nice guy he's a friendly <laughs> <Yeah>. guy <laughs> that's exactly the way this guy speaks, I spoke even, so it's, it's, it is terrifying. Yeah. Um, it's just awful and how he convinced everyone that he was like this kind of saviour of humanity and that his way was the right way and that after this nuclear war, the survivors would rise up and create this like utopian society and, oh, anyone ever says utopian society to you? Run, run. A mile. yeah just run um and if anyone ever approaches you and you think it's a religion and they say they want half of your paycheck run because it's a cult um it's just a scary world where it's so yes. easy to fall yes. into some of these cults uh, these things are probably still going on not to this extent but they're probably still that they're all certainly like organizations and things that are still yeah doing things like this like Scientology has got to be the main one yeah 
still fascinated with Scientology though. <laughs> That's the thing, these things they're like terrifying, but they are fascinating to learn. Yeah, definitely. And it's always like they always start with a religion too and uh, and that's where, yeah, like, yeah. where Jim Jones is picking on these uh, downtrodden people. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. Like, with stuff like Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, Defo Occult. Yeah. Um, that's where they start. They'll pick on the downtrodden. And then before you know it, you're in it and you can't get out. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'm going to join a cult anytime soon. No, me either. No, well, not unless you... it's a really good one. But you never really, you never know if you're being introduced to a cult, though. That's true. Would you, would you realise it was happening? I'd like to think that I would. Would I'd you? Like to... Yeah, no, I would. But I don't know, it depends. The people, like, in North Korea realise what's happening and what's what the rest of the world's like. I think a lot of them do, but because, um, again, like Jonestown, it's just their news being broadcast all day and they believe yeah. stuff like they win the World Cup all the time or they win every medal in the Olympics. They believe they invented the hamburger. Um, some people have got to know, like, this is bullshit. And I you think like that's why there's so, so many people who try and... Yeah, defects from North yeah, Korea. Yeah. My future holiday destination. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm. I'm way too scared to go there. You're not coming. <laughs> One of my friends really wants to go, and I was just like, "You are on your own, mate," because I will end up doing something unintentionally and get yeah. thrown in prison for fifty years. Well, that's what stops me from going because. I when I get nervous in situations, I say really random things, or do really random things, and um, I think I'd end up in other little camps, yeah, I think doing I hard labour until the day I died. Or I'd make a joke that I thought was a joke, yeah. and it really wasn't taken as a joke, <laughs> and they'd be like, "That's treason." What? And he doesn't really seem like you've got much of a leg to stand on. No. They'd probably cut really your legs get... off. Well, yeah, exactly. You wouldn't really get proper representation and stuff, so uh, I think you'd pretty much be done for. So I think I'll I'll err on the side of caution and uh, not go. Cool. I, I think it's still worth the risk for me. I just want to see what it's like. <laughs> It'd be nice to see a proper version of it with your yeah. own eyes. Yeah, I, I think that's it. It's just so fascinating. I feel like I have to go. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. But we'll see. <laughs> so that's it. I had to try so hard not to refer to this as the Brian Jonestown Massacre as well. <laughs> Should we call it that? But put the Brian in brackets. Different thing. <laughs> Completely different thing. The Brian Jonestown Massacre, on the other hand, isn't was not a massacre. It is a musical group. Yeah, it wasn't someone called Brian Jonestown going out killing people. (laughs) No, it wasn't anyone called Brian Jonestown or Brian Jones. No, no affiliation to Jim Jones. 
No. Well, I mean, I think that's where they got the name. Well. That is where they got the name from. But... There must have been a Brian as well. Part of the name. I think the Brian is... Is he, was he in the Who? Brian Jones, maybe? Something like that. Yeah, possibly. But I had to try really hard not to say that. And like I even wrote it down on my little script saying, don't call it Brian, because <laughs> that's really just not right. Because <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to mess this up and just say that. <laughs> it's one of the first things I always think of, though, as well. It's not just you. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, well, I'm about to boil to death. Uh, yeah, same. I'm going to open another beer and sit outside for five minutes. I'd love to sit outside, but it's way too hot and uh, there's some loud music out there. So. Yeah, you've, you've got your own disco every night of the week. Yeah, it's always the people with the worst music taste who play the loudest music. I don't know. It is. It They're so confident, but no one's impressed. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's really, I don't even know how to describe it. This just shows, like, I'm not, I'm not up with, like, modern pop or R&B or anything like that. And no. it's just really annoying. And because I can't hear, like, the full song, all I'm getting is, <laughs> that could like, just be oh, him. <laughs> he has been singing, and it is really, really bad. Oh no! Well, if he's listening, turn your shit music down because <laughs> I can hear it from here. <laughs> I mean, that's really bad. It was okay, and then it's just started really loud again. So, ah, <sighs> a nightmare. Did anyway, you? yeah. Let's let's do this again. Let's let's keep it if we can. Yeah, we'll have to. I mean, I've got no work now till September, so hey. I have lots of free time now. And I am no longer moving house or giving up old flats or having too many social engagements in the space <laughs> two weeks. So <laughs> I think I'm also a bit more free. There we go. Then it's the summer of podcasting. Yay. It's got to happen now. <laughs> right. Cool. Well, we'll we'll see you again soon. Thank you for listening. Yep. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Sorry for being away for so long, but we're back and we'll be hopefully doing this a bit more regularly again. We definitely will. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's it. Goodbye. Everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.